Hi, welcome. Thanks for joining us on March 26th, the last Sunday of this month. We will be gathering once again in person if you feel like stopping by uh, lower, well, not lower, I guess, mid Manhattan, 23rd Street off of Park Avenue at our friend's Center Yoga. And uh, we'll be doing one of our afternoon gatherings from 2 to 5 p.m. And the uh, link to all the information is Center Yoga NYC. And find it on their events page. So, um, yeah, uh, it's always great to sit, meet with, uh, connect with, in-person, build community you would like to support the work that I do, which is always by donation entirely, including the teaching and the counseling, you can use Venmo, Dharma Punks NYC, and the PayPal button is on the page with the talks, which is you can find on Dharma Punks NYC in Google or on our website. So with that... Tonight's topic is states which have been sought for millennia to achieve uh, pure, less clouded states of awareness, see past stressful, mundane concerns that leave us agitated and exhausted, alleviate our autobiographical self and our self-consciousness. And it's very possible, as we'll discuss, to use uh, some use plant medicines towards these aims, but using plant medicines on an ongoing basis isn't really feasible for most. It's not a sustainable replacement for the foundations of a healthy psycho-spiritual journey, which requires achieving higher states of consciousness without requiring substances, using meditation as a sustainable approach to achieving transmundane states of awareness. So before we go into that, it's important to understand why we want to change mundane consciousness that we find ourselves in most of the time and how we even go about that. So the Buddha noted that we bring an array of mental processes into every situation of life. And these mental processes shape our experiences in profound ways. Uh, Some of them are feelings, which are embodied uh, shifts, somatic markers, changes that uh, change our level of comfort and discomfort that uh, change the way we uh, relate to any experience. Then there, of course, are thoughts, which the Buddha called Sankara, which um, determine how we cognitively frame experience, all the statements we make, then there's states of levels of consciousness, Vunyana, which are just how alert and uh, present we are. We also talked about another quality, which is going to be much more the focus of our talk tonight, which are perceptions or sana. And sana or perceptions are an element of the Dharma that are not really 
talked about anywhere near as much as they should be. They're very profound. It's a very profound uh, insight of the Buddhas. Essentially, perceptions or sana are the ongoing judgments that we make about people, places, situations. They're kind of ongoing conclusions. And they spare us from having to reevaluate people, places, uh, events every time we re-encounter them. They're judgments, essentially, about uh, that we carry into the present from past interactions. And these judgments or evaluations spare us from having to pay too close attention so that our minds can focus on other things. So sometimes we make these perceptions about uh, just uh, like uh, when we are walking to work and we make a, a set of perceptions about how interesting the, our environment is. And we have a sense of what's in it, how much we should pay attention to it. And over time, we lose interest. And so on our way to work, uh, we can instead focus on thoughts about uh, what we're going to do that day or the following evening. We can get lost in planning. Sometimes we make perceptions or judgments about people. Um, we might decide that someone is hmm, uh, interesting, and so when we run into them, we pay more attention. Or we might decide that someone is uh, uh, is less uh, has less to offer, and we might pay less attention when we run into them. And so again, it. <clears throat> these perceptions raise and lower the amount of attention that we give to stimuli. There can be classic uh, perceptions uh, that not only govern how much attention, but how we respond to things. For instance, I might have a perception about certain cuisines, like uh, I love Vietnamese cuisine, and whenever there's a possibility of eating Vietnamese or um ramen or uh, 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 other cuisines i might uh, dim some i might leap at the possibility i'll pay attention i'll become alert i'll be invested on the other hand there are certain cuisines that that don't really interest me that much i actually don't <laughs> many people love french cuisine i'm i'm not really that uh, drawn to it so when people start talking about uh going out to a french restaurant i kind of lose interest and zone out and don't really pay attention and i'm not really that positive about it um we might have ongoing perceptions about uh, activities some people love hiking and whenever the possibility arises they become excited they pay attention they become invested other people find hiking to be tiresome i'm somewhere in between i don't really have that many strong perceptions about it 
some people have ongoing perceptions about uh, going to the dentist or the tax season. I, I personally don't really like the latter, the tax season. I I tend to put off, pay little attention to it, try to make it all go away as quickly as I can. <laughs> but in other words, our perceptions are these kind of assumptions that we make. And these assumptions we carry with us, and they govern how we respond to the stimuli in the future and how much attention we pay and how whether we pursue it or not. And um, unfortunately, many of our perceptions are based on false assumptions. Uh, there are too many to list. If you want to look at that, you could look at the work on heuristics by Kahneman and Tversky, uh, uh, thinking fast and slow. And they have this long list of just how many uh, skewed perceptions or skewed biases we bring into making judgments about uh, experience. Uh, one classic example of false uh, perceptions is, for example, people are good if they make our lives easier or bad if they question our judgment. Well, of course, that might sound uh, on one level to be uh, okay, but actually, uh, if we only gravitate towards people who make our life easier and we avoid people who question our judgment, then essentially oh, we surround ourselves only with people who approve of every bad idea that we come up with or every bad impulse. Um, and we'll talk about one of the most uh, staggeringly harmful false uh, biases or biases that make our perception skewed, which is negativity bias. The brain has a tendency to learn faster from negative experiences, to over-prioritize negative experiences and negative information. And over the course of life, people can accumulate a vast array of negative perceptions about the world and about other people. All of these are very ingrained, and we'll talk about how deeply ingrained they can become. And so the role of the Dharma, if I was going to summarize it, it's not just to, uh, while it's profoundly about ending stress, but it's one of its fundamental aims is to help us re-perceive life in terms of an unbiased uh, awareness that prioritizes truth and the importance of human connection over what feels good in the short term or what type of people are just uh, pleasant but not ultimately a benefit to us. So the thing about perceptions is that they actually have a way of controlling one of the most important or influencing one of the most important regions of the brain, which is the thalamus. It's the brain's relay station. All the sensory impulses that both arrive from the outside world as electrical signals and then wind up uh, in different regions like visual 
goes to the occipital lobe and sounds go to the temporal body sensations to the parietal somatosensory and then they all go back to the thalamus and then the thalamus depending upon uh somewhat the uh our perceptions determines how much information is going to be channeled to the cerebral cortex for interpretation the thalamus for instance shuts out info when we sleep which allow and it allows in more info when we wake up but it also gates out information about people places and things once we've made our minds up once we've made evaluations and so if we determine something is bad or inconsequential over time we through the repetition of engagement we train our thalamus to simply gate out all of the rich sensory information from the world around us and again the surrounding world bombards us with a lot of stimuli and being able to gate out certain amounts of information uh prevents overload of information so that we can think and plan so if all the time every environment is bombarding us with stimuli it would be very it would be impossible to make any plans for the future much less to listen to what people are saying to us and uh, and prepare thoughtful responses so to a certain degree at certain times we do need to be able to have a thalamus that will say enough too much sensory information not important let me think let me uh use my cognitive faculties to uh dream up some plans or come up with some solutions and so forth young brains when everything is new the unfiltered stimuli is intense and it can't even be overwhelming when uh for children colors are brighter tactile sensations are more vivid faces are more detailed uh trees and clouds are more intense cars are more fascinating but then over the course of life as we become familiar uh to this stimuli and we determine through just re repetition and through judgments and perceptions we pay less attention and the colors become muted and the sounds become a little bit less crisp and the tactile sensations less vivid and so on and so forth so we can see just how uh our perceptions and familiarity with experience over time can just make everything in the world less crisp less interesting less uh, um, detailed so on top of that uh i'd like to delve in a little bit deeper to just uh how uh these ingrained perceptions uh can cloud the way we uh perceive the world you see our brain is bounded within a skull 
and it has no way of actually knowing what's going on in the world around it other than uh, arriving electrical impulses being carried by nerves. Most people don't stop to consider that, but there's actually no, the brain is not, the, the eyes, the ears, they're not actually sending sounds or sights into the brain. Those The retinal cells translate light into signals, sounds, um, uh, are transformed in the cochlear nerve, I think, or whatever, to to electrical signals. Body, touch, smells, tastes, all of them are transformed into electrical signals. And the brain sits there in this darkness, enclosed in the skull, receiving all of these electrical signals. And its job is to somehow transform these electrical signals into a representation of the world around us. And with colors, lights, sounds, tastes. Um, and on top of all these impressions, we have higher order simulations like emotions and thoughts and stuff like that. So as far as we can determine, the way the brain does that is by constructing these very tentative simulations. So as these electrical signals arrive, the brain makes a, constructs a guess, a model of what it thinks the world looks like. And every time new signals come in uh, that uh, in some way contradict its model, it updates the simulations. And over the course of our life, our brains are constantly updating the simulations. But the thing about brains is that they try to go along with a simulation as long as possible without having to change it. And our perceptions or abstract thoughts have a way of not bringing in new information to challenge these simulations about the world around us. So um, think of the time you think you see someone you know walking down a street uh, when you're on or you see them in a car or something and then you really focus attention and look and they turn into some complete stranger so that's an example of how initial raw uh sensory information at first creates a, sim a familiar simulation oh that's my friend but then as you focus attention again and you get more sensory signals from that area it you determine no in fact that's a complete stranger i don't know that person at all so we can observe the brain literally changing the simulations of the world around us sometimes if you're taking a hike and you're walking on a trail and you suddenly see at your feet a snake and then you stop and you freeze and you look down and it's a stick that's another example of how the brain gets some very raw tentative data it transforms it into something we know a snake and then the more we pay attention and get more electrical signals the brain goes, oh, wait, that's not a snake, that's a stick at my feet. So depending on how much attention we give, 
we get more detail and the brain changes the form of the world around us, this, the objects of the world around us. We live, I hate to be the bearer of such big news, but we live in a simulated reality where the more we pay attention, the more our world tr literally transforms. And to even add another concept on top of this, reality is built on scaffoldings. So suppose I hold in front of you, um, I don't, let's see what I can hold in front of you. Ah, here we go. I'm holding in front of you a pen. Uh, here's a pen. <laughs> and um, your brain, if you're looking at the screen, notes that certain signals are breaking the continuity of the background of the wall behind me. I shouldn't shake the pen. I should just hold it steady. And uh, eventually over time, your brain will uh, differentiate this object from the world around it and transform the raw sensory data into a pen. So that's a very basic uh, raw uh, impression of the world. But then on top of that, you might add higher abstractions. You might say, oh my God, that's a cheap pen Josh is holding. Or I wonder if that pen even works, or I would never use such a pen. <laughs> or I wonder where all my pens are. I never keep track of them. So on top of very basic, uh, very basic impressions of the world, we add all of these abstract concepts and some of these abstractions are what we call perceptions evaluations on how important this pen is and whether you know if i kept holding this pen up over time you'd stop paying attention to it you'd stop being interested in it and that's what our perceptions do they give us permission to stop attending to stimuli we form an evaluation so all of our abstractions and just judgments rest on these very basic, very basic impressions. And one of the interesting things is that we want to really reconstruct reality in our world. One of the ways to do this is to go back to the pay attention to the raw stimuli that's coming in. And in so doing, we can break apart all of the assumptions and all of the abstractions and judgments and perceptions and just return to the raw sensory input of pen and from the ground up rebuild new perceptions. And this is important because in life, um, due to negativity bias, we can, over the course of our lives, um, negative perceptions, disappointing, slightly disappointing experiences become increasingly uh, more influential to our judgments and perceptions and our attention than positive experiences. And over time, people become, unless they interrupt this process, they become increasingly pessimistic 
and they don't they see futility everywhere where there are resources around them and what we want to do is break apart reinforce the brain to reperceive and rebuild up all of these perceptions and abstract concepts and one way to do that is to return to the raw sensory data that's coming in there's a great neuroscientist ruben laconen and if you look up his word work l a u k k o n e n ruben laconen and um he does a lot of work on showing how meditation uh returns the brain to rebuilding uh from the ground up the scaffolding of perceptions and judgments and so doing it can interrupt uh the entire way that we perceive ourselves and our world around us now psychedelics um uh have uh uh implications here what they do is they stimulate the serotonin type 2a receptors which happens to be the key molecule that can disrupt your thalamus and your thalamus if you've forgotten is that relay station which determines how much stimuli goes into your frontal lobe how much you pay attention to the world around you the sensations that surround you and if you recall our perceptions and judgments and famili familiarity with the world can lead to this gated out uh muted uh lack of paying attention to the stimuli that surrounds us well hallucinogens completely open up the thalamic filter and it floods a region of the brain called the posterior cingulate cortex with sensory data and the sensory data because of the the uh disruption of the thalamus is shifting and changing so suddenly we're surrounded by like uh, sensations associated with our hands or our image in the mirror or with nature around us or with a rug or a pattern on uh, a piece of artwork and suddenly all of this information which previously the thalamus had gated out is now bombarding and flooding into awareness and what it does is it completely disrupts one our self-conscious autobiographical narrative which is known as the default mode operation of the brain all of our autobiographical concepts about ourselves who we are what distinguishes us from other people is completely obliterated and instead we have this morphing evolving shifting overwhelming sensory stimuli from the world around us and this flood of raw sensory stimuli allows for us to build new connections and perceptions and people can watch as their perceptions morph and change and uh so it over in short amounts people who do use plant medicines report that it can be uh it has effectivity with PTSD 
and some success with treatment resistant depression um it forces us to reform new perceptions about people and the world around us as we talked about uh we go back to the raw stimuli and all because of the thalamus and because of the the disruption of the default mode operation the brain has to rebuild from the ground up a lot of our judgments that over time have become too concretized too unyielding um it disrupts our autobiographical sense of self so that it, it can allow for a greater sense of connectedness to the world around us and allow for a radical reprioritization of our lives so i mean for many people it, uh being used in a constructive setting with people who are familiar with it and in a spiritual context it can be a value and in short term there's very little evidence that it's uh, particularly harmful though as an ongoing use there's a lot of data that uh if we rely rely on it um as a kind of foundation of a psycho-spiritual healing um practice then there's a lot of negatives and drawbacks um regular use of hallucinogens and overstimulation of serotonin type 2a receptors is associated with actually increased anxiety, depression, chronic fatigue, obsessive compulsive disorder and most importantly it can induce psychotic episodes and people who have a predilection to schizophrenia are very 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 cautioned against any use of it over time people who rely on plant medicines or hallucinogens experience anhedonia and a motivation which means an inability to find joy or interest in life so it kind of has a rebound effect that undoes all of its benefits if it's uh used uh as a foundation for one's spiritual journey I personally as a Buddhist pastor don't consume any substances and yet I can use spiritual practices to achieve altered states of consciousness without relying on any exogenous substances and so if you're sober and don't want to consume or if you have spiritual beliefs that contradict the use of plant medicines uh, you are not uh walled off from the benefits of um a altered state of consciousness that for that allows the brain to rebuild its basic um uh perceptions of the world reprioritize and allows us to gain distance from our autobiographical self and perceive ourself in different ways the buddha did this through jhana or constant fixed concentration meditations on the breath uh sounds casinos or objects from the world like candles and uh or or uh, other objects or nimittas which are internally generated 
images. All of um, these fixed, uh, very focused states of attention can dissolve self-consciousness, the autobiographical self. Uh, the Buddha uh, noted that it can uh, provide what's called Dibet Kachu, which is a divine eye, a way of seeing outside of the present to see all of the linkages, he said, between the past and the future as they play out through the present. It allows to cultivate a non-dual state where we no longer perceive the world simply be behind our eyes and between our ears, but there's this vastly expanded non-dual state of awareness. So how does it do that? How does simply fixing our attention on uh, a theme um, in a very relaxed way allow us to cultivate an altered state of consciousness? Well, it turns out that the longer we sustain attention on any uh, ongoing sensation that we don't have to so much put any effort into that just is effortless, uh, one, it activates your dorsal anterior cingulate, and it deactivates the default mode uh, ventral medial network, which is all of the stuff that you think about yourself, all the self-narratives, the autobiographical sense of self. And so the first thing that goes out of the window when we're really in a relaxed way, focusing attention on the breath or on a candle or on um, holding up our hand or looking at it or sounds is that the inner speech the thinking over time if we do this in a really relaxed persistent way over time the inner thought begins to subside especially self-oriented inner thought now at first many of us who try to meditate find ourselves thinking more because as we pay less attention to extraneous stimuli, thinking pops in. That's what it's been trained to do. But if we really, really focus attention on an ongoing set of sensations, then over time, with enough practice, the inner speech begins to subside. Um and another thing that happens is that it engages the forward um, projection of dopamine from the ventral tegmental region of the brain, which makes it very pleasurable. We enter what the Buddha called states of bliss or a great sense of ease. And by focusing intense attention to something over time, the brain has to re um has to rebuild its simulation of whatever it is we're paying attention to so if you stare at your hand long enough without any judgment and just take in the actual light color the textures and all that staring at your hand over a period of time will your brain will be forced to go back to the raw sensory data and override perceptions familiarity you've built up about your hands so sustained attention meditation and pairing back attention to raw stimuli uncouples it 
from the abstract perceptions and it forces us to re-examine judgments that cloud our perceptions of the world and it reshapes the world around us. Ultimately, the goal of altered states of consciousness, whether provided by meditation, by plant medicine, is it forces a, a radical reappraisal of the world around us that we think we know, but actually it forces us to, uh, like in a state of awe or wonder when you encounter like a Grand Canyon or amazing natural environment like a waterfall or a mountain and you stop in your tracks and you, all of the interior thought subsides and you're in this state of just drinking in all of the sensations and it forces us because all of the self-narrative faculties that distinguish us from the world and other people fall away and what happens is there's this radical reappraisal, a renewed sense of who we are based on this encounter. The more we gate out awareness of the world around us, the less stimuli we take in over the course of our life, the more important our sort of mundane concerns and our thoughts and the things that separate us, hallucinogens when they work for people at a certain age or when, or meditation and spiritual practice is that this dropping of all these concepts of who we are and how we fit in and how important we are and, and how important our mundane concerns are. And it just creates this need to reappraise everything. So we're going to be practicing this in our meditation. We're actually going to do uh, two meditations that are aimed at cultivating an altered state of consciousness. So put on your space suits <laughs> and uh, find a really super comfortable position. And we're going to be doing one practice, which is based on a casino, which is we're going to focus on an external object. And I'm going to suggest using your hand because that's a, a cool one. But you can use a candle or you can use um, a shrine of a Buddha or you can use a piece of art or a piece of nature. If you're looking at a window, focus on a tree. And we're also going to use an internal nimitta. Uh, nimitta is an image we generate and uh, we use to focus awareness. And then once we have that focused awareness, we're going to use it, relaxed awareness, we're going to use it to transform our perceptions of our bodies. So um, thank you for listening. I hope something in that talk was of interest. And what I'd like you to do is first close the eyes. And what I'd like to do is start by engaging our parasympathetic nervous system by uh, uh, 
slowing down respiration, allowing us to relax and to limit the amount of stimuli that uh, um, arrives from the thalamus to our frontal lobe. So what we're going to do is we're going to breathe in and then breathe out the same length as the inhalation or longer. When you breathe in, count one. When you breathe out, you can note two. When you breathe in, think three. When you breathe out, think four. When you breathe in, think five. And then as you breathe out, we're counting down now, think four. Breathing in, think three. Breathing out, think two. So we're counting from one to five and back down. All of the in-breaths are on the odd numbers, one, three, and five, and all of the exhalations are on two and four. So every time you reach five, breathing in, then you're counting back down to four. So you're counting up to five from one and then back down. Odd numbers on the in-breath. Just try to slow this process down. Try to soften your belly. 
Release any held tension in the shoulders. You can rotate the shoulders back and drop them. Softening the muscles in the face. Just again, let the belly relieve. He is soft, pliant. If the belly is relaxed, the mind will follow. And again, counting up to five and then back down. And when you're ready, try to visualize a bright, simple shape, such as a circle behind your closed eyes, and fill the shape with any color that's soothing to you. It could be a shade of blue, or orange, or red, or any color. Just fill the circle without a black outline, just a circle filled with color. And as you breathe in, expand the circle. And when you breathe out, then allow the circle to rest. And with each inhalation, you want to expand the circle larger. With each exhalation, just relax the body. Just allow yourself to fall a little more into this expansive color that you're visualizing. And eventually, with the in-breath, you want the, the color to become so expanded that it envelops all of your surrounding. 
And you can spread this brightness down into your body, suffuse it in all directions. And now using this soothing, all-encompassing light, bring your attention to any sensation in your body, whether it's the breath, or any other part of the body, or sounds arriving from the world, and just re-examine each arriving sensation with a kind of close, relaxed attention that allows you to bring some degree of wonder and awe. So for example, if you pay attention to the sensations a breath arriving into your chest. Just really, really pay a kind of attention to this expansion and contraction that you've never done. Like you're breathing for the first time. You've never felt what it's like to be in a breathing body. or if you're paying attention to another set of sensations, bring the same kind of wonder. We want to return to the most basic sensory information, allowing the brain to re-simulate the world around us. If it sounds then you've never heard a sound before. And just bring that wonder and curiosity, close attention to each sound as it arises and passes.
So for our second practice, try to bring this relaxed attention that you've brought to your meditation so far. And gently open your eyes and pay attention to an object that's close by. If you'd like to use one of your hands, or an image of nature or piece of art. If you do use your hand, gently let it relax and just rest your gaze on it. And as you breathe in, just Try to bring in all the detail of either the back or the palm of your hand. And as you close, as you breathe out, close your eyes and try to reconstruct your hand in your mind's eye. And then when you breathe in again, open your eyes and return your gaze to the hand. And again, try to bring in as much information, sensations. If you're not using your hand, bring it to whatever object. With each out-breath, closing your eyes and allowing your mind eye trying to reconstruct the object with as much verisimilitude. What we're doing here is forcing the brain's simulation to shift and change the more information we bring in. And as we close our eyes, we see the perceptions that we're making about this object. So breathing in more detail, more attention, Breathing out, noticing the image impressions the mind is forming about this object. With each inhalation deepening, bringing more open awareness to the object.
So whenever you feel inclined, you can bring your awareness back to the screen. You feel like rejoining us. And these were just two examples of meditations that if we practice enough can change the state of consciousness or perception that we're in. There's many others if these two weren't effective for you. A couple of examples are, uh, one is to close your eyes, find the most soothing sensation in your body, and with each in-breath try to spread the soothing sensation to suffuse it through your body and then spread that peacefulness beyond your body. So you find your awareness extending beyond your body. Another ancient meditation, the Atamiyata, is to bring piece by piece awareness of all the sensations that are present around you at once. So your breathing, body, sensations, sounds, feelings arising and passing, uh, awareness of thoughts and of external sensory impressions until your mind is completely consumed by this sort of these sensory impressions. And that too disrupts the function of the uh, normal thalamic gating as well as diminishes the autobiographical self and uh, disrupts default mode processing of the brain. So um, anyway, hope tonight's talk was of some interest.